Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall, your host. I am a professor of pharmacy practice at uh, Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Iowa Methodist Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Uh, so today we are, again, going to kind of go off the beaten path, but I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, it is uh, brand new guidelines uh, for the management of post-procedural headaches. So people who have epidural procedures done um, and they develop a, a pretty bad headache afterwards. Um, and the, these are the first official guidelines on the management and prevention of that just published a couple of weeks ago in JAMA Open Network. And, and again, this isn't a, it realizing this is not a, a huge primary care thing, but I will tell you that, that certainly in my practice over the years, I've certainly seen this several times and, and probably I see it three or four times a year where someone will get an, uh, an epidural for pain, uh, an obstetric patient will get epidural anesthesia. In my world, it's usually someone who gets a lumbar puncture and then after the lumbar puncture, uh, they develop this just absolute blinding headache. And, and I've heard people say it's just the, the worst headache they've ever had. Um, and, and so, you know, how, how to deal with that and how to prevent it and how to manage it is something that I deal with several times a year. And uh, if you work inpatient, something you're probably going to see as well. So when this crossed my desk, I was like, wow, I mean, that this is the first guidelines ever on that. I thought it was definitely worth kind of reviewing. So again, we're talking about post-procedural uh, puncture headache or PDPH, which is a recognized complication of epidural procedures. And it happens because they're it, it, of unintentional dural puncture, right? So they, you know, get into the epidural space, but unfortunately they, they puncture the, the dural space below that. And that leads to a drop in CSF pressures, which they, they suspect is the cause of, of the headache. Though, in, interestingly, studies have found that even when they, when they measure uh, CSF pressures in these patients, that, that there doesn't seem to be much of a correlation between drop in CNF pressures and the development of headache, but that's generally thought to be the pathophysiology. So these guidelines um, are pretty extensive. And again, you know, if, if you're not in primary care or you're one of the, one of the OB-GYN people who, who listen to us or anesthesia people listen to us, you know, it's, it's definitely worth a read. Uh, they pretty much got approval from every possible uh, uh, major uh, organization that could possibly deal with this, including the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medication, uh, the uh, European Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Therapy, the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, the Obstetric Anesthesis Association, the American Society of Spine Radiology, and the American Interventional Headache Society. I haven't even heard of most of those organizations. I mean, uh, so I have to admit, I was like, okay, well, I mean, they certainly talk to everybody who uh, who probably would have an, an opinion on this. And they basically uh, uh, got input from all of these uh, organizations and they actually reviewed the the guidelines and and put their stamp of approval on it. But yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I, you have to wonder what the uh, uh, the annual meeting of the American Interventional Headache Society is like. I mean, do they have like, what, six people there <laughs> and stuff? I don't know. It's just, it's pretty interesting. But anyway, uh, they, they then talk about the definition. So the definition by the International Headache Society, yet another organization, is that PDPH is a headache attributed to low cerebral spinal fluid pressure occurring within five days of a epidural procedure or a lumbar puncture caused by CSF leakage through the dural uh, space. And um, they note that the headache is usually accompanied by neck stiffness, 
often with subjective hearing symptoms. And I've heard, I've seen that a couple of times too, where patients complain of you know, really bad ringing in their ears or sometimes a loss of hearing, a subjective loss of hearing in one ear or the other. It's usually remits within two weeks after the, the puncture, um, but sometimes does not. And, and something I was unaware of just because either I haven't seen it or that these patients go home and develop long-term problems is that many patients actually uh, have re remitting headaches after that two weeks. And it can be, again, extreme in severity, uh, at least on a par with migraine pain and sometimes worse. And that they note that there's some complications that are reported with post-procedural headache, including uh, backache, cranial nerve dysfunction, subdural hematoma, and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And again, I've never seen any of those type of complications, but uh, doing some research prior to the, this podcast, yeah, I mean, there it is uncommon, but it has been reported all of those things have. So, you know, uh, uh, post-procedural headache has the potential to, to have some serious long-term side effects. And even if you just say, well, it's only going to last two weeks, uh, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, keep in mind that that the patients who may uh, suffer from this the most are, are uh, postpartum patients and trying to take care of a little one while you've got a terrible headache that you can barely think straight for two weeks is not going to be fun, right? So for a variety of reasons, you know, this isn't something that should be shrugged off as, oh, well, you know, you know, this is just one of those things that happens with epidurals, you're just gonna have to deal with it. So again, I had been completely unaware of the long-term complications associated with, with, with this. So that was kind of interesting. As far as the methodology of the guidelines, it's pretty standard. They used, uh, instead of the, the grade guidelines, they used the squire guidelines, which I, I had heard of before, but it's not really the standard, but I mean, it, it certainly can be used. So it stands for Standards of Quality Improvement Reporting Excellence. Um, again, it has very similar um, uh, requirements to the to the grade guidelines where you're required to, to basically reach consensus in a group that you make all your uh, recommendations based on the evidence and you and you assess the evidence by how, how uh, robust the evidence is and uh, by how high the um, recommendation is based on that evidence. So again, just like almost all other guidelines nowadays, it's a, it's a, a PICO format where they ask questions, then try and answer the question based on evidence. The evidence is graded as A, B, C, or D, again, on, on high level of evidence. And uh, the certainty is, is, is uh, high, moderate, or low. They brought all that together and then made the recommendation and, and basically the level of certainty of that recommendation, basically. As you might imagine, there's not a ton of randomized controlled trials on this, though there are some. Uh, so a lot of the, the evidence uh, to support these recommendations isn't as robust as you might think. But surprisingly, considering all the different uh, groups involved, they found 90 to 100% consensus for almost all recommendations uh, after the second round of voting. So, so kind of interesting. So, so we talked about the definition of, of what the post-procedural headache is. It's, again, worth noting that, that even though we think that, that this is because of a drop in pressure in the CSF due to a, a dural puncture, that, again, uh, uh, they have not found significant differences between pressures after the level of headache. So, again, it, that may or may not be the pathophysiologic reason that applies. So the first question uh, that they ask is, is, is when should post-procedural headache be suspected? And they note that it should be suspected if you have a headache or these other neurological symptoms, the backache, the neck stiffness, the, the hearing stuff, uh, um, within five days of a neural axle procedure, um, which a level of certainty was moderate. 
they they say one of the key notes in in especially the headache is that the headache gets better when people are lying flat, which I guess stand, kind of stands to reason because that's going to obviously change cerebral spinal fluid pressures. So if they have kind of an orthostatic response to the headache when they stand up or sit up, the headache gets a lot worse. That should be kind of a cardinal uh, uh, thing for diagnosis of this. And patients who develop this again because of the the possible long term complications shouldn't shouldn't just shrug it off. They really should at least report it to their physician who who, who performed the the, the uh, procedure. They note that they have done some studies taking a look at risk factors. So again, I suspect if you were an, an anesthesiologist and you were performing the neuroaxial procedure, you would want to take special care uh, in patients who are at risk. And uh, they note that with a high level of certainty, uh, age is actually one of the biggest risk factors. And interestingly, younger age is associated with an increased risk of post-procedural headache. Of course, you have to wonder since the vast majority of neuroaxial procedures are done on are done on uh, uh, obstetric cases. That you know, is that the reason we just do far more neuroaxial procedures in pregnant women? So they're the ones who are more likely to get it. But again, that's the, the guidelines note that that younger age is, is associated with it. As as you might again guess, female sex is associated with increased risk of poor procedural headache. And uh, again, one would wonder if that's just because pregnant women get more neuroaxial procedures. They does not suggest surprisingly to me that uh, uh, body mass index. So obesity, you know, you would think that uh, as obesity goes up, uh, it may be more difficult for anesthesiologists to prefer, perform neuroaxial procedures without perhaps nicking the dura. Uh, I know that in my hospital, uh, you know, when we have an obese patient who requires a lumbar puncture, we rarely uh, do, the, do that without getting them down to interventional radiology so they can, they can actually do imaging to, see, to, to, to make sure that you do get a, a, um, a decent LP done. So I thought that was actually kind of interesting that BMI actually is not associated with an increased risk of post procedural headache. Um, other comorbidities, uh, patients who have a history of migraine or other severe headache are at higher risk of developing post-procedural headache. Um, uh, smoking does uh, uh, might be associated with it. The level of certainty of the evidence is fairly low. Uh, depression uh, does not appear to be a risk factor for post-procedural headache. And again, as you might imagine, that post-procedural headache and an act of pushing during the second stage of labor has been studied. I wouldn't have guessed that, uh, but apparently uh, is is uh, conflicting whether putting in the epidural needle at that point of labor is associated with an increased risk. I guess that's again kind of stands to reason. Difficult to do an epidural who's someone who's you know actively in labor and actively pushing. You might be at more risk for for nicking the dural when you do that. So kind of interesting, I thought. So so that's kind of the definition. That's kind of the risk factors. What can we use to prevent? Uh, post-procedural headache and from the, in, the internal medicine perspective, because again, we're not going to focus on, on what the anesthesiologist can do to prevent or treat post-procedural headache. What can we do as far as treatment is concerned? We're going to talk about all that after a message from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self.
So we're back talking about a, uh, a unique set of guidelines, guidelines talking about the prevention and treatment of post-procedural headache that was published in, in JAMA Omen Network just a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about the definition. We've talked about risk factors now. What can we do to prevent and treat? So, you know, first, let's talk about treatment. Um, again, as, uh, as, as far as prevention is concerned, uh, there are all sorts of techniques that the anesthesiologist can try to do to minimize the risk. Since this isn't an anesthesiologist podcast, it's really beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about here. So, yes, if if you want to read that section of the guidelines, well, as always, we have a link to the to the guidelines in our show notes. Um, it you might want to read that, but again, I would suspect most of our audience that's going to be not something that they do. So, we're going to focus on on management. And as far as management is concerned, um, uh, you would think that bed rest would be the way to go because if if they uh, um, are feel better when they're lying down, we should try and keep them lying down as much as possible. Possible. They say, though, although this might be a temporizing measure for symptomatic relief, you actually probably don't want them to be flat on their back for long periods of time. This is certainly true for obstetric patients, right? We want them to get up and move around so that they're at decreased risk of, of venous thromboembolism. Um, and you should just get them around and move anyway. So uh, they say that, yes, you know, for, for, for temporizing uh, a symptomatic relief, we shouldn't, we should do that, but we should not order long-term bed rest in these patients. Second, we should make sure that they're adequately hydrated when people have really bad headaches. Of course, it's hard for them to get uh, proper uh, hydration and fluids in. So again, oral fluids are certainly reasonable for an outpatient, but intravenous fluid should be used uh, if, if a patient can't maintain normal hydration. Um, they've tried things like abdominal binders to see if that increases CSF pressure. That doesn't seem to be beneficial. Apparently, somebody has studied aromatherapy. Wouldn't have guessed that for post-procedural headache. And uh, uh, shocking news, it doesn't seem to be effective for that either. So no aromatherapy, I suppose, for, for, for that. Then they talk about, you know, actual, uh, you know, analgesia for these patients. Um, uh, like everything else, multimodal analgesia with things like acetaminophen, non-steroidal, should be offered to all patients with post-procedural headache unless it's contraindicated. And that's uh, evidence grade B. Uh, they do say that short-term use of opioids could be considered. I know in, in, in my cases that I've seen in the past, we've really tried to avoid opioids in these patients just because we know it's temporary. And um, usually we can get some, at least some relief with, with you know, non-opioid therapies. But, you know, certainly if somebody had a severe headache and, and uh, traditional non-opioid therapies wouldn't work, yes, I think, you know, a PRN order for, for an opioids, you know, kind of for the short-term kind of makes sense. And they, of course, don't recommend long-term opioids because, you know, who does recommend long-term opioids for most types of pain anymore? They do go into some detail talking about the one treatment that I've used many times over the years and, um, uh, you know, I know it's been studied is uh, caffeine. Caffeine seems to be fairly effective in relieving post-procedural headache. Uh, and and should be offered according to the guidelines within the first 24 hours to a maximum dose of 900 milligrams a day. They do note much less uh, caffeine, two to 300 milligrams a day of breastfeeding. Um, and uh, they 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 say you know instead of drinking 10 cups of coffee, you know try to do one source of, of caffeine to prevent adverse effects, basically. Um, so you know again talking about caffeine in the old days uh, when we had somebody with with, with a post tap headache, we would just give them intravenous caffeine, which yes does exist. Um, well, it used to exist. Now it actually is not in most cases available. And when it is available, it's uh, limited to it to use in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit. So uh, most hospitals do not have it available for adults or don't have it available at all. 
Um, so, uh, you know, in, again, in the old days, we used to give 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams of IV caffeine. Now you're going to be kind of stuck giving, uh, you know, oral uh, method of caffeine. Uh, it's worth noting that the average cup of coffee has somewhere between 50 and 100 milligrams of, of caffeine in it if you're using very potent uh, uh, you know, high, you know, caffeine, things like energy drinks and stuff like that, you might be able to get up to 200 milligrams. So, you know, it's going to require, you know, uh, either taking caffeine tablets, which uh, do exist, or, you know, again, uh, having some pretty potent drinks, including caffeine to really get that treatment. So in the last 10 years or five years or so, I've had a difficult time, you know, getting caffeine to these patients just because uh, IV caffeine doesn't exist anymore. And if you've got a terrible headache drinking, you know, five lots lattes is not something you're really interested in doing at that second. So that, that has been a, a struggle that I've had over the years. Um, then after that, they've tried all sorts of other things. They've tried hydrocortisone, uh, theophylline, triptans, which I thought triptans might have an effect, but they don't. Neostigmine, atropine, on and on and on and on. Gabapentin, because of course, who hasn't tried gabapentin for some pain uh, syndrome somewhere? And none of them have found that they're beneficial. So, so none of those things should be recommended uh, for the treatment of post-procedural headaches. So then if those uh, conservative measures fail, then you can uh, move on to procedural interventions. They've tried all sorts of, of different uh, procedural interventions uh, uh, for the treatment of a post-procedural headache. And unfortunately, most of them have not been, been, been very effective. Uh, uh, they say that, that uh, uh, using a, a occipital nerve block uh, with uh, um, wider gauge needles uh, may be beneficial, but the but the benefit is is uncertain. Uh, they also say that epidural saline may be of temporary benefit because I'm sure it just increases CSF pressures temporarily. Um, and they actually caution against the use of fiber and glue uh, to to basically seal the, the the dural leak because it's been associated with anaphylaxis and aseptic meningitis. So yeah, probably don't want to do that. And then they talk about the wide variety of, of other procedures that have been done. Acupuncture has been tried. It doesn't work. Um, a, a number of other anesthetic uh, or anesthesia procedures, including ganglion blocks, uh, acceptable nerve blocks, things like that. They note that that some of these can be offered to patients, um, but, but either don't have a lot of headache or, or don't have a lot of evidence to support them, or the, uh, the benefit is, is really kind of uh, temporary. Um, they note that using uh, repeat spinal anesthesia with a smaller needle may have some benefit, but, but really is, is only used in, in, in uh, small cases. It doesn't support other types of, of drugs like epidural morphine shouldn't be used. And then a variety of, again, you know, epidural dextran, gelatin, starch, all this other stuff doesn't, doesn't seem to, to be beneficial. So really, you know, the big um, procedure that should be done in these patients, of course, is the epidural blood patch, which we've, I've seen done many, many times in these patients. So if, if conservative therapies don't work, the anesthesiologist goes in and basically seals the dural leak with, with an epidural blood patch. Um, as I understand it, it's not a very difficult procedure to do. It's obviously not something that I'm going to be doing anytime soon. Uh, but but as, uh, the people, the anesthesiologists I've talked to over the years, or the residents I've talked to over the years, seems that that it, it's, it's a fairly um, a, a simple procedure. However, it does have risks, especially in patients 
who have uh, at risk of bleeding because again, you know, the point of this is to basically cause a small blood leak that that basically clots over the dural puncture. But if the patient's at risk of, of bleeding, they're at risk of epidural hematomas, which um, can be actually uh, not life-threatening, but but can lead to per, uh, permanent paralysis. So even though uh, blood patches, you know, are safe and effective in the vast, vast majority of patients, there are patients you would not want to use an epidural blood patch, and that's in patients who have a platelet less than seven. 70,000 according to the guidelines uh, in patients who are taking antiplatelet agents um, or anticoagulants, uh, it, it basically says that 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 uh, the risk is is there, and and again, it doesn't mean it's an absolute contraindication, but you need to be very careful about about using uh, uh, doing epidural blood patches in patients on those uh, medications. So it it doesn't go so far as to say you know yes, you absolutely shouldn't use these, but they just basically you know reiterate throughout the guidelines that caution should be used. Uh, in, in these patients because of the increased risk of spinal hematoma. Is imaging required in these patients? Do you have to, you know, run them to the MR or something like that? Uh, they say largely no, that, 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 you know, once you've kind of, you know, figured out the diagnosis, especially again, if they have orthostatic headache, that you probably don't need, you know, an extensive imaging workup. But they do note that, that if the patient uh, has had a headache onset more than five days after the, after the procedure, then it's less likely to be post-procedural headache and that's something you'd want to consider. If they have any focal neurologic de defects, visual changes, alteration in consciousness or seizures, especially in the postpartum period, that should prompt neuroimaging to evaluate other diagnoses. But again, we would do that in everybody who came in with new onset focal deficits, visual changes, alteration in consciousness or seizures, right? So everybody who hits the emergency room with any new onset effects like that are all going to get neuroimaging at, at a minimum, a CT scan, as, as you might imagine. So that's kind of it. That's kind of the, the guidelines. And, and, and basically, you know, I think the, the, the piece to take away from the, the primary clinician is that if a patient has had a neural actual procedure and they come to you instead of the person who did the procedure and say, you know, hey, you know, I've, I've had this headache, you know, for, you know, four or five days, it started the day after I got the neural actual procedure and it hasn't been going away. What should you do? I mean, I think the first question you ask is, are they having any other problems? Are they having hearing loss? Are they having, you know, neck stiffness? Are they having focal deficits? Are they having, you know, anything along those lines? Um, I think they should contact the, the physician who actually did the procedure to see what, what the next move is. If in the hospital, these patients have, have the, uh, a, a post-procedural headache, it's reasonable to try multimodal therapy, occasionally opioids, try to get them to, to, to get uh, uh, caffeine into them to see if that works in the first 24 hours. But if all else fails, then yes, if they don't have any uh, contraindications, get anesthesi anesthesiology in to perform a blood patch. And that usually works in the vast majority of patients. So that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers, uh, a little bit off the beaten path, but hopefully something you enjoyed. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We will see you next time. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.